0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the change world around us and how we can make it better, brought to you by Climate Change Realty. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode. We are here with Dr. Phil. Phil, how are you doing today, man? I'm good.
1: I haven't heard that in a while since I was teaching at CU. I used to get Dr. Phil all the time. Um, I bet. Less so. <laughs> I rarely put my credentials behind my name, and so uh, good catch. That's funny.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I can re- I can respect that. I'm not big on credentials either. I just couldn't resist. Um, but yeah, I would love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I um, and we all have we all have stories, and uh, for me, the, the more that we can understand our story and where we're coming from, um, the less blind spots we'll have in what we create into the world, and the more expansiveness our vision our creativity can be and so i i've spent quite a bit of time trying to understand my story um you know we're all part of systems and lineages and and um patterns that um, either consciously or unconsciously you know create beauty or injustice and everything in between and uh yeah it's just fascinating um so i love the opening question i i grew up in a small farming um, county at uh, the top of the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. Um, you know, my grandparents uh, were just deeply engaged in in uh, community service um, and in in all kinds of ways. Um, they were the only doctors. Uh, my my on one side of the family, my grandfather was a doctor and his wife a nurse, um, and they delivered you know thousands of farm babies you know uh, you know throughout this county. And I was really taught at a young age to you know, explore my gifts and how to use them in service to the world and, um, humanity and the earth. Um, grew up in a very humanitarian service oriented, um, family, um, grew up actually very conservative, um, religiously and have since expanded sort of beyond that into a more progressive kind of open-minded, um, spiritual approach to the world. But I have a lot of, uh, roots in that zone and so it has it, it conditioned and, and really me to be someone that who has operates from a deep place of empathy understanding that differences the differences that we often face in the world aren't so much intentional but really the the outcome of our long story and and that that um, upbringing um, in that rural area in Maryland um, I really really love just being able to romp through the woods and the farmland working as a farm hand here and there um, but all said and done I I was going to follow in the tracks of being a doctor, um, Mm -hmm. like my, my father and his father and got to undergrad and said, man, I'm just too in love with the environment and we're at, um, I went to uh, Eastern university, um, in Philadelphia. It's a really awesome, um, Christian university. It just, it kind of exploded my consciousness. I mean, we, you know, we we go through life in circles, you know, where we sort of understand ourselves and then reach those darker moments of like, God, I can relate <laughs> yep, yep, for sure, and so yeah, so you know, I, I went through academia for a long time, had some really profound experiences in Africa, um, and had some profound experiences during my PhD while I was doing my you know degree in biology and global ecology, um, working around the world from Southeast Asia to Latin America. Um, and I can go through those stories as we like, but um, it brought me back home, it brought me back to the really, really wanting to work in the communities that I'm a part of. And and as much as I love the academic journey and and understanding sort of the the fundamentals of how ecosystems work, um, I wanted to get my hands dirty. I wanted to get to know the people that we sort of share, as I say, kind of share a destiny with. Um, you know, one of the things that really bummed me out about my my academic work was just I would do all my thinking here in Boulder, and then I would try to go across the world to try to implement it. But you know, I wasn't a part of those communities. We weren't co-creating. Sure. And um, for me, uh, coming back and trying to put what I had learned in academia from like a first principles perspective into action has really been the kind of the, the crux of the work, you know, ideas without action are dead. How do we take the things that we believe in, the things that are beautiful, the things that, you know, we think that good economies should thrive by and actually put them into motion, you know, rather than writing books and journals about them. So, that's a little bit about me. i um, been in Boulder for 12, 13 years now um, and uh, stuck. You know, we're, my, i got for four sure. kids, and a, a really awesome wife who helped co-found Matt Ag. Um, and uh, this is our community. And we're starting to spread our wings and work across the country um, in a variety of ways. But uh, this is home base. Boulder has been a great environment for us to build the organization and, and find
0: some flight. I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I gotta say, that's the best "Who are you and what do you do?" response that I've got so far. Episode twenty nine. Uh, what, what were you doing? What were you doing right before you started, Matt Ag? Uh, I was working with some just
1: incredible colleagues, um, uh, working on tropical rainforest ecology. Um, I cool. uh, worked with some fantastic folks out at Stanford, at Duke, um, Brown University, of Montana, CU Boulder. And we were just really trying to understand the fundamentals of how climate change was going to influence tropical rainforests. Mm-hmm. You know, rainforests are the lungs of the earth. They take up more carbon dioxide than any ecosystem on an annual basis. And um, we were really curious about, you know, how does carbon get sequestered out of the atmosphere, into the trees, into the roots, into the, the trunks, the biomass? How does it circle? How does it flow? And And what's that vulnerability to precipitation changes or temperature changes and and so um, I was working really heavily in that, in that zone um, academically. And then, you know, I was doing a bunch of other stuff too. I'm kind of a, a generalist. Um, I was also, I, yeah, I tried to start a private equity fund for bioenergy investment in Southeast Asia. Um, I also had um, really given a hard push at starting an insect-based animal feed company. Um, again, these are all pieces of the journey. Um, ultimately, you know, I I didn't follow those through for a variety of reasons um, related to risk and and the kind of capital we were going to need to raise to do it. Um, And then again, another dark night of the soul going, wow, here I've come, you know, it's 2017. I've got four kids. um, You know, I'm not happy with how I'm, I'm manifesting my energy in the world. And what does that mean? And you know, my wife and I took a, a break, I think September 2017, uh-huh. really at a low point, went back to Maryland where I grew up, spent some time by the waves, breathing in that, you know, humid East Coast air. And then the current version of Mad Ag kind of gave birth and it's, it's working uh,
0: quite well. Bringing back memories of your childhood, too. That's really cool. What do you what do you find when you're in these dark moments where you have to kind of make a big change in your life? What do you find pulls you forward to like your next vision or the future the most? Is it family or is it reflection or time off? Man, those are great questions. I mean, I think the the toolkit, the process
1: by which we nourish the dark part of our, our time is, is uh, it's it's uh, it's not clean and not clear. You know, there are practices and principles to fall back on uh-huh. I read a poem by John O'Donohue called For a New Beginning. I think, oh man, must have been 450 days in a row. Um, and that poem um, really speaks to trusting the working of the dark, you know, and you can't Certainly. stagnate. You've got to push forward. Um, you've got to try things and, and take courage. And so for me, it was a lot of poetry. It was a lot of writing. I wrote a lot during those days, um, even though the future was unknown, I I'd spent a lot of time you know, doing internal work that was pretty messy and unclear and unclean, but just, you know, it was one step in the right direction is, is, is better than anything, you know, and you got to, you got to do it. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that I did um, and a lot of things I didn't do. I mean, I I really, my, my sense of self-care, you know, you know, honoring my body as well as my, I, I, I tend to over nurture my mind. You know, I'm a cerebral, I think person. our society
0: incentivizes yeah. that as well. We live in a very cerebrocentric world. That's just how humans have, have evolved. It seems.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I played soccer my whole life through college and, and um, I, I really hit that hard or when I was in Boulder, but then I fell out of that. And yeah, it's, I'm, I'm actively just trying to figure out what my even kind of vision for self-care is. I wrote a mm-hmm. five pointed star the other day and I've been kind of building a bit of a manifesto around it. And, you know, um, Trying to be realistic about it, I'm a. Yeah. My, the thing I do pretty much every morning is I do a lot of breathing exercises, and then I plunge, uh-huh. um, usually in Boulder Creek, and I'm, cool. I'm pretty militant about that. Cold. Um, so I'm Wim Hof and you know Kundalini yoga, uh, that whole thread of breath work is is really big for me.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that's really cool. I'm we. I'm very interested in everything you're saying. We could get into a lot of self-care and self-improvement. I'm all about kind of being a better version of yourself every day. But I think what, what people really need to learn about is what you guys are doing at your company. Cause it's so, so essential. Not to say that mental health isn't very important, but I think, <laughs> I think you're, what you guys are doing is incredible. And I think it's so underpublicized. So Phil, what yeah. is soil, what is soil health and why does it matter? Yeah.
1: So, yeah, here at Ag, we really are are about all about regeneration, healing our relationship to ourselves, which we were just talking about, healing our relationship to others and healing our relationship to the earth. You know, we believe that there needs to be a pretty big reimagination of the way humanity leans on, depends on and cares for the earth. And that, that stewardship begins with the soil. The soil is really where we come from, not only like physically where we come from, what we build ourselves out of through what we eat. Um, but it's also, I think, more like the soul of humanity, human humus, humus, like all those things have the same root. Um, and, and we've forgotten that, you know, we, in the way that we've kind of distanced ourselves. Well, it's, it's sort of an artificial distancing from nature. Mechanized. We sort of see ourselves as other Um, even though we're wholly not, I mean, just as that tree is breathing behind me, we breathe as well. Um, and, and we, we have distanced ourselves in ways. And so, you know, Madag, we focus on soil health. Soil health is, is, is really the vibrancy. It's the spirit of the soil. You know, we can talk about how to measure it, but again, as we were just saying, you know, the cerebral part of our culture wants Mm -hmm. to reduce health to a list of numbers, and you know, for me, it's it's really just like it, it starts with smell. I mean, there's something deeply innate, deeply human about going out into your garden and turning the soil, you know, and cultivating, and just having the dirt under your nails and that sense of like the aromatics. Um, that that you know, when it smells full of life, um, is soil health. Um, and we, you know, if it smells like minerals and rock. You know, it doesn't mean it's not healthy. You might be in the middle of the desert, you know, and that's sure. what the soil is. But, um, you know, soil health is kind of the foundation of what we think is like good human economy, you know, and is largely why we work with farmers, because, you know, the nexus point between the well-being of the earth and the well-being of humanity is the farmer is the steward. Um you know, Wendell Berry, you know, who, who was the inspiration for mad agriculture, he wrote these poems back in the 70s and 80s called the Mad Farmer Poems. Um, you know, he once said, you know, how we eat determines how the world is used. And and it's so true. Um, and if we look at the patterns of land use in the Amazon, you know, um, whether it's clearing the rainforest, create soybean fields or whether we look yep. just right now, we look, you know, from here out to Pennsylvania, look across the prairie. There's very very little prairie left. All the all the plains have been turned to grains, you know, corn and beans and alfalfa, and um, that's wreaked havoc. You know, I mean, biodiversity um, is staggering, and the losses there with birds and insects. Um, you know, the amount of short grass or tall grass step prairies, the lack of bison um, here. I mean, you know, we we as humans are very good at um, I mean, look at me, I'm a I'm a white guy sitting in the front range that was only colonized 150, 200 years ago. I mean, yeah. we got to get real with that history, but it's so easy to forget it. We're not even pay attention to it. Yeah. Um, and so what happens is when we don't think about our story, we, um, we then lose a sense for what the land needs us to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stewards. it becomes destructive.
0: Yeah. So... A little more on, on, on soil. So, so I'm wondering how one would measure the health of the soil of soil. Cause as someone who has very little information, like I watched kiss the ground, that's about as far as I've gotten. But like if a healthy gut, like a healthy stomach has a health, like a microbiome. So there's a lot of different uh, bacteria or whatever Mm. living things that are microscopic live inside of you and, and you're healthy. If you have a lot of variety of different whatever these these yeah. little things are in your body. It's the same thing with the soil, no? So we've we've created these these monoculture farms where we're putting the same thing, like you said, soybeans in over and over again and, and the soil all all the the little microbes, microbes, I think is what they're called, mm-hmm. are dying off because there's only one source of nutrients that doesn't necessarily nourish everything. And that's just not natural. Mm-hmm. So is the idea to have lots of different types of plants and lots of different types of nutrients going into the yep. soil, because it's all about these, these microbes, right? It's like soil's not just like, it's not like rocks. It's like a living thing. Is it not?
1: Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of life in, in even a gram of soil. I don't know the stats off the top of my head, but it's extreme beyond fathomable. You know, it's, it's kind of the thing. I mean, I do a lot of breath work I was telling about. Cool. And like every time we inhale and exhale, we inhale more molecules than there are grains of sand on the earth. I mean, it's just sort of like, whoa. And that's yeah. the same kind of thing with soil health. I mean, the amount of the diversity of life in just a teaspoon of soil far outweighs all of like mammalian diversity, all bird diversity. You know, this is like primordial life forms. God, we're killing that
0: too. So, it's terrifying.
1: Yeah, it's well, it's terrifying and beautiful. I mean, I think, again, going back to our culture, we want to know everything before we do it. But I would argue, and this is probably going on a limb, is that we don't need any more science to know how to live well. Right? I mean, there's like, we understand enough to know how to love, how to be compassionate, to be good stewards of place. Like, science certainly helps advance things, but it doesn't necessarily advance happiness. Um, it can advance longevity, which those things can be, be related to happiness, but, you know, our over, um, our over exuberance to like define, reduce, and know everything in an attempt to gain control over everything has, um, led us down a long path of, um, of, uh, basically it's been an illusion, right? I mean, it's an illusion when you try to control everything, which is impossible it's a way of gaining safety and security, but um, you lose beauty, you lose the ability to live with something something not being predictable, Um, you know, and getting comfortable with uncertainty, I think is actually the key to a generous understanding to the things that actually matter. I mean, just take like the political landscape, you know, it's so easy to demonize the other side. But what's not happening is a genuine curiosity and an unknown and a humility to say maybe I don't know. I'm actually willing to listen to you, and I think that we we're just hyper focused on knowing and control, um, and uh, it takes the mystery out. And mystery is what we live for. I mean that those that's the mythology of humanity. We're not going to know the big questions, you know, where we're going after we die and all this stuff. I mean, it's impossible. You know but those are the things we obsess on and we we build religions around and we we hyperanalyze and it's like we got to think about like a a more generous and open approach and soil health is exactly the same thing i mean i can tell you how to measure soil health with the modern mind you know Mm -hmm. looking at fungal and bacterial ratios and looking at the amount of nitrogen in there and looking at you know the amount it respires and how much extractable nitrogen phosphorus and boron there are like yeah those things matter you know, but, but, but that's not soil health. That's, that's an element or a dimension of it. Um, It's not
0: the soul of it. For sure. Okay. Well, so, I love this. This podcast is going in a different way than I had expected, but honestly, this is the kind of conversations that I have off, off screen. So let, let's let's roll with this. So one of the yep. things I wanted to bring up towards the end is your quote about how radical love must be the root of all action. How do you see with what you're doing with regenerative agriculture as promoting these ideas that you're talking about of, yep. of spreading love and um, creating connect- connectivity, not just between people as in like love as emotion between um, humans, but as a, lo- a love for the environment and all living beings around us. Yep. Oh, man, so much. I mean,
1: you know, for me, um, perhaps the most powerful way to create a more beautiful world is to engage and activate and restore humanity's sense of and love for place. You know, what we care for, we protect um you know think about the place that you grew up on right like i grew up on a small farm i would fight tooth and nail for that thing to be preserved and not be developed you know i would fight tooth and nail you know for that place to be to be um improved to to be lived with to be um artfully cared for right like the things that we love we
0: care for and because you have an illogical connection. It's emotional. It's it's part of something that's not like this, not the cerebral mind. It's your animal instinct. It's a, a sense of connection and love to something.
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we have these things as a little vignette into this. We have these hats we sell called the, the medicine hats or the animal yeah. hats. I saw them. They're cool. Yeah. And they showcase species of the world that have been hurt by the industrialization of the food system. These are species that are often keystone species of the ecosystem. So we often ask like, what does the land want to be, right? Like like absent of massive human modification, the first question is, what does this place want to be? Like, what is the evolutionary expression in this place? Like thinking and using that really as our like moral guide to beauty and expression. Is there like, really an it? answer to that? Um, well, it's evolving. You, there, it's not fixed, sure. but it's certainly worth considering. Um, you know, when we overlap, like let's say we take a, 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 just like a, I mean, look at it all across the West. Um, we take a model for building an urban system like New York City and we say, we're gonna build that in the middle of the desert and call it Las Vegas. Like uh-huh. that creates absolutely unsustainable resource use. Like we, we don't, as humans, we do not know how to listen to place to give birth to what evolves. We take one thing and we replicate it all over the world and it creates massive imbalances. Um, and, and that's, that's um, created, I mean, I mean, just look at Las Vegas as a, as a point, point in case. I mean, the Colorado with this, how dry it is this year, you know, the water problems we're gonna face all across the West are not a problem that there's not enough water, it's that we have built our systems to, to use way too much. Um, and, and it raises bigger questions should we be living here? You know what I mean? Like I wonder that all the time in Boulder. It's like, should I even be living here? Um, And, you know, as you look at the wildfires in California, there are more and more and more people moving from California to Oregon, Washington state to Vermont. I mean, it's just starting to happen. And because we as Americans are so buffered away from the direct risks of climate change, you know, we don't see it as much, but, you know, you look through the Middle East and, and Mesopotamia and cultures that, don't have this sophisticated sort of like industrial safety protectors around them, um, migration is happening like crazy. And so sure. I'm off on a little bit of a rant right here, but the- um, I love it. The, 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 the solution to this is, is asking what does the land want to be, or even more appropriate, maybe what does the land need us to be? And, and then designing our systems of living in reciprocity with that place around the answers and the explorations of that question um and and the other thing is is that when you fall in love with the places and the people that you depend upon you begin to care for them beyond um an economic transaction right like Like, I mean, I have no idea where this glass came from. I have no idea, actually, I have a little bit of idea where this coffee came from. But the way that we consume around the world, because our supply chains are so opaque, because we do not know what justice or injustice is being created by the way that we rely on the earth, um, we just go on destroying. I mean, really, because it's unconscious. It's unconscious. and I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I just think that we, this is the power of story is the power of relationship. It's the power of connectivity and that, that the, the currency of relationship is love. I mean, it's literally the currency of it and um, of at least of a healthy relationship. And so, you know, that's the kind of currency we have to be developing. Um, and without it, without being, you know, how, how often do you talk about love in a financial meeting? How often do you talk about it in the hallways of academia when you're studying something? You know, it might be what's motivating you to be there, but you never talk about it. And that's actually part of the reason I left academia. Is like, listen, I'm working in these rainforests because I'm 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 in awe of them. You know, what keeps me coming back to these rainforests I could never measure. That's you know, that's what von Humboldt said back in the you know 1700s. He's like, I love measuring these things, but you know, what keeps me coming back I can never measure. And yeah. I just feel like we um, have to figure out ways for humanity to fall in love with the people and the places we depend upon. Because if we can nail that, then we'll have a a renewed sense of commitment and shared
0: destiny on this little rock in space that we call Earth. Yeah. God. Phil, well... Well, I love you, man. I mean, everything you're saying, it, it vibes with me, it connects with me so much. But I think that's because you and I have both spent a lot of time thinking about what are places in the world, who we are, where do we come from, who do we want to be and who should we be? But I guess my next question to you is, how do you find a way? Because everything you're saying deeply resonates with me, but I have mm-hmm. friends all over the political spectrum and all over the world who see the world very differently, who have, are different varying levels of insecurities. And I, I'm curious, how mm-hmm. do we connect with people who are deeply conditioned by the way society currently works and are, frankly, a- afraid of change? How can we get them uh, in, uh, in support of us when, while mm-hmm. kind of keeping them comfortable, I suppose? Or is it the truth that everyone yeah. needs to get comfortable being uncomfortable? I don't know. I just, I just, yeah. I want to, be able to connect with the every man because the way the way you're speaking right now I know because I'm loving everything you're saying that most people that a lot of people are like what so like how can we connect to like that type of person as well well um it's a Hard. good question and I think there are a lot of ways um mm-hmm.
1: and not everyone is on the same journey um and so the way that we do it is we often and the way that we work with farmers is it's never telling them what to do. You know, it's, it's about sort of helping them realize their hidden potential. That's unrealized. You know, that's really the art of, it's like a good coach or a good therapist or a good, um, a good friend. They help you achieve something that you know is possible, but you need that catalyst. You need that inspiration. You need that support. You need that, that fabric in order to express yourself. And, um, and so for us, you know, especially in farmers we work with, they're often stuck within systems that they're frustrated by, deeply frustrated by, but but by themselves, they can't imagine their way out of it. Um, and and so what we do is we, we help farmers tap into that, like, okay, who are you? What's your vision? What are your values? What's your lineage? What's your story? You know, yeah. why are you here? I mean, most farmers are not farming the land to make money. They're there because they, they immigrated five generations ago, wow. and they fled from some sort of persecution. They um, were looking for a land of opportunity. They, you know, I mean, like those are the reasons that a farmer is ultimately in their place. And so what we do is we try to tap into that kind of bigger meta-narrative of what's going on in the land and get to know that story. And then look for ways to enliven their vision for regenerative ag, and, and that can look a lot of different ways, um, which is which is the beauty of listening to place and listening to that story in that place, and so um, that's how we do it. And you know sometimes we we kind of sit in this philosophical zone when the farmer can go there, and sometimes you know it's it's like message and messenger. You know, um, Taknahan, who's you know Buddhist legends guru. Um, I, I lean on quite a bit, um, you know, he once said, you know, it's the responsibility of the communicator to know what the listener needs to hear in order sure. to find resonance with shared values. And so we, we spend a lot of time thinking about language, about, you know, making steps that are um, reasonable, you know, because change is really hard. But change is the only thing that we know to be true. I mean, okay. really. I it's mean, there's a lot of things. To be, time. But change is what happens. You know. I mean, it's facts. That is the thing, and I think we are highly uncomfortable. And it, there's like evolutionary reasons why we're uncomfortable with change, right? Safety, security. Um, you know. I mean, there's there's great reasons not to not to want things to change. But um, you know, it's I, happening I either way. It's gonna happen either way. Yeah. And, and if you can use the force of change for good um, it actually can be a powerful, you know, transformer of your life and your farm. And we, we help farmers kind of lean into that a bit and, and um, find the right level of risk taking and go for it. Um, cool. Farmers that aren't willing to change um, we don't work with, you know, we, nothing against them. Uh, you know, it's like, Hey, you got your thing going. Um, we might or might not disagree with, what that is being expressed and what's that bringing into the world. But, you know, we're not going to bother you. Um, you do your thing and we're going to work over here where we think the revolution is happening. And that's where we focus on our energy.
0: Yeah. It's about finding a way to incentivize people. And I do think at like a visceral level, it does come down to love, but you, not... All, especially men don't want to hear hey man like just let's go spread love with your plants like the, you know the farmer who's been working for 40 years with his out in the yeah. fields every day is not is not going to but it, it is kind of what we're doing but any, anyways moving forward I just want to touch a little bit on the, 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 this idea between sustainable and regenerative mm-hmm. practices as I'm getting into this climate space more and more it definitely seems that we're at the point now where not only do we need to create a society that can sustain itself, we need to clean up all the garbage from the last 40 years. So I, wanted, yeah. I just wondered if you could touch on the difference between sustainable and regenerative, maybe agriculture practices. Yeah. And we'll talk about regenerative ag in general, what it is, how it's yeah. done.
1: Yes, I mean, it, there's no hard fast definition for sustainable or regenerative and you know people bicker and debate all over it you know for various reasons, some good reasons, some not so good reasons. Um, the way I see it is, is, sustainability is about sustaining what is, and regenerative is about giving more than you take, um, and oh, so yeah. it's about re- restoration. It's about bringing life back. It's about being in service, you know, to the expression of living systems, you know, based on their unique sense of place and that evolutionary power that I was talking about. Like, you know, when you're talking about sustainability, you're often in the world of like life cycle analysis and reducing carbon footprints, and you're in like, hey, if I do good over here, I can offset it over there. You know, like that's the world of sustainability. The world of regeneration is much bigger. It's about tapping into longer lineages of wisdom. It's about reciprocity. It's about giving back more than you take. It's about, um, you know, really working with and harnessing the evolutionary power of life to to give unique expression to every acre of land on this earth. Um, Rather than the whole Midwest being corn and beans, Mm -hmm. You know, it's about, okay, we know we need to live in reciprocity with this place and eat food, but we're not going to like just monoculture the hell out of it. Um, And so regeneration requires a much deeper inspection of who we are as people on earth. And, you know, there's a lot of people doing regenerative ag um, that are, I would say, just sort of still operating in that sustainability paradigm Mm -hmm. um, of like sort of, you know, um, you, you, you can see a lot in like the usda the government and stuff like that where it's like oh you know regeneration are the five principles of soil health you know keep a living root in the ground and you know armor the soil and and have livestock integration and use cover crops or whatever they whatever they are um for me that that's a that's a step in the right direction but if it's not asking the big questions um it it falls short of the regenerative paradigm um but you know it. At the same time, I don't demonize those folks. Um, you know, for me, the essence of regeneration is any step toward healing your relationship to yourself, to people in the earth. And so I'm not going to deny anybody a regenerative life. Um, but, but again, we tend to work with folks that are sort of pulling the whole existential hood off of things.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the fact of the matter is, we've got certain subsets of the population that just, ignore this space completely they they need a b c d and and that's okay too because even big thinkers like you and i also can can be helped by someone who thinks that way because when you bring you know the most successful corporations in the world were started by a visionary person and a systems person and you put them together and they let they let the visionary guy do his thing and then the systems guy's like all right he wants to achieve this i can get a b c d e so phil how do you plan a regenerative farm
1: Well, the first thing is, is not not planning it. Um, The first thing, it might sound counterintuitive, but we don't plan it. The farmer plans it. We provide the container in which the farmer finds life to plan their farm. We have fallen into the trap many times of planning farms for farmers, and then you hand them the 40 page farm plan and nothing happens. (laughs) Um, And what that ends up being, it's it's our best projection of what we want that farmer to do. Mm -hmm. But we have not Entered effectively the co creative space to create a farm plan that actually finds life. And you know, farmers don't want to be told what to do, neither do you. And so, what we have been focusing on is really developing almost like a series of frameworks that farmers we use with farmers to understand where they can find and put their best foot forward. Um, And while farmers might think they know that, what we're learning is is that farmers are usually running right up against the wire all the time. I mean, they're just, mm-hmm. they're working like crazy. They're operating on thin financial margins. There's quite a bit of stress in the system. And our best gift is to help them to find a breath, pause and, and provide a little bit of a conversation of trust and vulnerability to say, okay, I need to stop and pause. And you know, having a farmer work on their vision for their farm and their family is something that a lot have never done they might have done it up here while they're sitting in the combine or you know walking soybean fields and picking weeds out but they've never articulated it and slowed down and they never shared that with their family and so we work on something called a holistic context um, which helps the farmer understand you know who are their decision makers who who are the ones influencing the apple actual operation you know what are the resources they have at hand and what is their capital that they can put to work to actually achieve that vision, most often financial capital. Um, Then from that place of context creation, we then look at the farm ecosystem um, using a framework called the scale of permanence, um, which is basically looking at a farm through all the dimensions that give shape to the farm, but slowing down so that complexity can be unraveled so you can look at where there's a strength or a weakness, where there's a, a weak link, where there's a big opportunity to move. And so the scale of permanence is called that because there are things in, in a farm and in your life you can't change to the things that are totally malleable. So climate, you can't really change it. I mean, we influence, but you can't change it in the way that it influences your corn crop. Um, we work through climate, your geography, your, um, your land use your um, topography, we look at your, your tools and infrastructure, we look at the plants and animals that you work with to steward the land to make money. We look at, um, you know, the foundation of that economy, which is the soil health. And we systematically can work through that kind of scale as visualized almost as a circle. And, um, and that really reveals a lot for the farmer about, okay, this is where I need to put my best foot forward. And then we help them basically pathfind, but we don't tell them what to do. Um, and what's so interesting in the way that we work is, is that after we get through that kind of first two steps of, you know, vision, exploration, um, farm system design and operation, what we, what we then do, um, is we give life to that plan by connecting that farmer as best we can into, um, a larger community of practice. So Mm -hmm. who you, who you surround yourself with is who you become, um, and for farmers that are often isolated or surrounded by stagnant communities, entering into a broader movement where they're living beyond themselves to something greater is one of the big keys to really bringing life into that vision. The second is access to money. Um, you know, money is the currency of the human economy, just like carbon is the currency of the natural economy, and um, and so we have to figure out ways to flow capital into the farm. And then the third relationship between that farm and the world at large behind community and capital is then markets. Where do you sell your stuff and how do you get paid and get paid a fair value um, for doing well by the land and doing well by, you know, your work. Um, And so that's kind of our framework of change. I see that we work with all farmers with, and it's kind of a first principles approach that can work on a five acre farm or a 10,000 acre farm. Sure. Um, And, and that's kind of the way that we work
0: with, with farmers. That's amazing. Would you, would you mind going into a bit more detail as far as the funding will work, how you've had success, different investors coming in and investing in these these yeah. projects. I know you guys have two funds, the perennial fund and the NRCS for funding, whatever it may be. You yeah. wanna just so then, share a little bit about that? Yep. Yeah, so we, um, we, we only have one fund right now called the
1: perennial fund, um, gotcha. but we do, work with the National Resource Conservation Service, the NRCS I see. I see. Um, to connect basically farm bill dollars to farms. And so, you know, the farm bill is a, is a really huge um, public bill um, that's passed every five years. And it provides an enormous amount of incentives and, and backstops and farm, you know, subsidies for farmers. And there are really um, negative parts of the farm bill. And then they're really positive parts. And and we really try to get those farm bill dollars working for farmers toward the kind of shared vision of regenerative ag that we're pushing for. Um, the perennial fund, um, you know, we were—I'll tell you a little bit about that. We we decided to create that um, because we were trying to help farmers move to organic um, operations using regenerative practices, mm-hmm. and we just couldn't find any financiers. That would be willing to actually fund these operations. It's too far out of the boat. It's so a community bank, you yeah. know, or most farmers' bank. You know, the only thing they'll fund is what's kind of like average for the area, and average for the area in most parts of the country is the industrial ag complex of, you know, corn, beans, and glyphosate and neonic pesticides. And yeah. if you break that system, which is, which is not serving the world, but is very durable in itself. Um, you, you, you can't find money if you wanna break out of that system. And um, that system has the farmers um, totally up a creek. I mean, they, they have virtually like less and less control on the cost of their inputs, the seeds, the fertilizer and labor, blah, blah, blah. And then they have no control on the value of their product. And so they're squeezed between these two forces where the value of the product has been stagnant for decades you know, just for inflation, and the, the cost of inputs has been rising. Um, and so, you know, this year alone, I think 36 to 40% of farm income was provided by government subsidies. It's not nice. much or 36 to 40%.
0: That's an inefficient system for sure.
1: Yeah, so our farm bill scaffolded the wrong system. And, and you can spend your whole life trying to scaffold out of it, but we just help farmers kind of break out, you know, and, re- and that, that's the, it's unbelievably broken. Um, and so what we, what we focus on doing is trying to basically build, I and mean, this is you know, when we were talking about kind of like, how does a good old boy farmer talk about love? Well, you don't use the word love. You use the word <laughs> freedom. You use the word independence. You talk about family. You talk yep. about community, sense of place, belonging, you know, and you have them walk fence lines with you and take you in combines. And when they look at you and pat you on the back, that's love. They don't say it. They say it in nonverbal ways. And so, you know, that's the kind of work that we do. Um, and uh, it's really, really fun. Uh, but that's, Sounds I don't it. know, I don't know how we got there, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll let the, I'll let us roll
0: on. But that's where we were. It's all good. Um, so, I guess my next question is the reason that the, this system, well, when you brought that statistic of 36% funded by the government is mind blowing to me, but the reason this large scale commercial agriculture is in place is because we have this crazy growing populations. So I guess my question to you is how can these more, these practices that are more in tune with the natural world be scalable and actually feed a growing population?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say that industrial agriculture, um, didn't, isn't the precursor. Um, well, that's a good question, actually. I wonder if Thank I'd you. actually agree with that. Thank you. I was gonna say it's not the precursor of a growing population. I think there's a bit of a chicken and egg there where sure. the growing population and the industrialization of ag evolved together. You know, it's not one before the other. And so we are in this predicament of needing to know, you know, like can the earth actually provide the calories needed to feed, um, the world. And, and, and we often hear that like, Oh my gosh, we need to grow more food because of the population. But it turns out that if you just look at it, calories, you know, mm-hmm. calories produced in the world, we actually produce enough calories to feed well over 10 billion people. Absolutely. Um, if people don't eat too much and we grow the right kind of calories. Surely right now we're not growing the right kind of calories. We're growing corn and beans to feed livestock in you know, concentrated feed operations, and it's enormously inefficient. Um, and and so if if we focused, you know, it's not about can we grow enough food. We already know we can. It's about what food we grow and what we eat. And then this gets back into much deeper, more touchy, more volatile. Like like how do we build markets that actually reflect the true cost of of the food, right? Like the true cost of growing a cow in a concentrated feed operation with its climate impact, its animal welfare impact, its labor impact, its land impact. It's, you know, this this gets back into like externalities and capturing those on the balance sheet and all that stuff, you know, um, which might even bear us into carbon markets here in a second, but, um, you know, we're not very good at capturing the true cost of food and reflecting that in its cost and value um, right now, those things are, are, are being, um, you know, those costs are being, um, shouldered by the environment. Um, they're being shouldered by people, you know, living around those areas that are often disenfranchised or, you know, a BIPOC communities. And it's just, it's not good. Um, so we got a lot of, we got a lot of work to do on that front.
0: Yeah. And like you said, let, let's talk about carbon markets. Because when I walk around town, I see these people with signs that says, we're carbon farm." Is that from you guys? Um,
1: the no, car- that's from EcoCycle.
0: Yeah, it's it's from EcoCycle. EcoCycle. That's right. So we had Zan Jones on the show a few weeks ago. So uh, what what is the carbon marketplace? Because that, that's not, it's a term that you don't yeah. hear too often. But the idea of a carbon marketplace
1: is that you can, you know, if you're someone that wants to offset your footprint from whatever you're doing in the world, whether it's a coal plant or it's uh, driving a car around, um, you could purchase a ton of carbon um, um, and that would be sequestered somewhere else. Um, And there would be a system that would prove that that would be sequestered somewhere else so that you had a verifiable carbon offset. Um, And so there's been a lot of work in carbon markets. and just to say up front, I am not a fan
0: of them at all. Um, Interesting. And um, you want a holistic solution. Yeah. You don't want, you want want part here, part there. You want to just fix it altogether.
1: Yeah, it's a holistic solution. I also just feel like we should embody that value in the, in the value of food that's produced on farms rather than, in, in, rather than create a market, you know, which I'll go into all the problems of the market in a second. Um, let's just like pay the farmer the fair value of creating something that nourishes the land and nourishes people. Um, and if that is true, um, then they should, they should be paid for it. Um, right now, you know, where that conversation often goes is like, well, if you're going to charge more for that food, then how are poor people going to be able to afford it? Unfortunately, the way the system has evolved um, is we have a artificially low price of food where it's really, really cheap but it's not serving right like the land is worse off for it and human health is often worse off for it and, that, and is that because so, of
0: the government subsidies as well
1: well it, the government subsidies recapitulate and reinforce a system of producing food that is you know not nutrient dense and doesn't feed people it feeds animals and and for me you know i have nothing no problem eating animals i'm not a vegetarian But those animals need to be raised in environments that are in nature's image, like eating grass off the land, not eating corn and beans in a concentrated feed operation. Um, And so, you know, most of the way that that dairy is produced, most of the way that meat is produced at like those cheap like $3.99, $4.99 a pound thing, which most people have now become highly accustomed to, Mm -hmm. it's coming at a massive cost um, like I, I read a statistic the other day, and whether this is true or not, I think the case in point is it, it's illustrative, is that you know a Big Mac costs you know four bucks for McDonald's, but the societal cost, when factoring in human health and climate change and all that, is twelve dollars. So you're paying four bucks, but it actually costs you twelve bucks. So we're going into debt, in debt to what? We're going into debt to nature, we're going into debt to our own health and well-being, and Um, these are the kinds of like holistic economic visions that I think as humans, we just are really bad at calculating or understanding. Absolutely. Um, But, you know, going back to the carbon market, I mean, the carbon market, there's, there's a bunch of philosophical problems I have with it. there's a lot of practical problems. One carbon market is, is a very, it's a reductionistic thing. It doesn't address root cause, you know, let's say, you know, I'm a coal fire power plant that's blowing coal up into the air um, outside of Los Angeles and, you know, it's causing climate change, but it's also has all of these other harmful air pollutants, um, that are affecting people and giving people asthma all around. Well, that, that coal plant could purchase all the offsets they want, but not solve the actual problem that they're creating. And so, you know, by offsetting over here, by doing good over here is a, um, it's, it's actually just a ruse. You know, it doesn't actually solve the real problem. The other thing is, is that carbon is not the same everywhere. It's the same element, but it manifests differently in every place. So, you know, creating fungibility on a balance sheet, what I mean by that is like a tropical rainforest carbon is not the same as a prairie carbon. Like those ecosystems are utterly unique of that place. And they have their own essence. They have their own indigenous value. They have their own biodiversity, they have their own expression in species. And when you put carbon on a balance sheet, it makes it fungible, carbon's carbon. And, and when you do that, it either incentivizes or legitimizes its destruction based on the current financial economy that we live in. And right now, the environment serves our financial economy rather than our financial economy serving the environment, which is the true nestedness of our economy. Um, we just don't realize it. We're egotistical and, and we're humans. Yeah. And so um, those are just some of the problems that I have with it. The other, the other issues Absolutely. are just like to measure, report, and verify a ton of carbon and sell it is extremely difficult and costly. Um, and we, we ran this route, you know, man, I guess maybe 12 years ago, 2008, 2009, 2010, carbon market 1.0, Um and it's all happening again and we're running, we don't have those problems figured out. Um, and we're setting up a system where um, we're not gonna have a verifiable ton of carbon if someone wants to buy it at a, at a, at a price that's even worth trying to measure. Um, I'll just give you an example. Sure. Um, you know, a farmer gets paid $15 a ton. That's what the market currently tries to pay. That's the most you can get for a carbon credit, it's $15 a ton. A, a carbon be, card, you said? A carbon credit. Credit. Okay, yeah, gotcha. So, a carbon credit. Let's say you store a ton of carbon in your soil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a good regenerative farm might get half a ton of carbon in their soil per year. So that's half of fifteen bucks. That's seven point. That's seven and a half bucks a year per acre. Um, that's not very much money for the work that it requires to get a ton of carbon into the ground we calculate mm-hmm. that it's 55, 60 bucks at the least to get carbon into the ground. Got it. And the other thing is, is that the social cost of carbon, like basically the cost of having that carbon in the atmosphere to humanity in our systems is well over $200 a ton. Where and do you so, get these figures from? Oh man, um, p- papers and papers and papers in nature and science on the social cost of carbon. I'll take the, your uh, word on it. the $15 a ton is what the market will bear. You go you know, ecosystem service marketplace or Indigo Ag, that's the market signal. And then the cost per ton sequestered, there's a great McKinsey report that came out that really showcases that and just internal numbers here. Got it.
0: Well, Phil, it's been more of an honor than I could have imagined to have you on today. I really appreciate you coming on. Just the last question relating to what you just said about the environment serving the economy versus the Mm. Economy serving the environment, I find that I think that's beautiful. That's a really good way to look at. It. I'm curious, how do we encourage this this new age way of of looking at the world as humans are the stewards of the planet? Because right now we're we're like the we're like sucking the energy out of it. We're like the parasite of the planet in, in a yeah. sense. And it seems to me like most people, uh, I'm a bit crude. Are most they're concerned every day? They wake up, they think about paying the bills and getting laid. So so how yeah. can we like change people's minds because that's kind of what I'm trying to do with this podcast what I'm trying to do with my business what I'm kind of trying to do every day but I also don't want to force my ideas on others and you sound exactly the same as you have all these ideas and the way you want to change the world but you know that telling someone to do something and even giving them a manual of how to do it is not enough so how can we encourage people to to reimagine their positions and become these Mm -hmm. stewards that we so desperately need today Mm. oh I wish there was a simple answer <laughs> uh, I wish there was Me a Me too. Other. Me
1: too. No, I think it I think um I think it's different for each each person in their journey and that's the hard part. You know, that's the mm-hmm. hard part. That's the real work is we're a big fan of grassroots change. The the trans you know, power to transform the world lies in the unrealized potential of every human. It doesn't rely oh, So lie, good. Yeah. That's it. And so unfortunately that requires every individual to connect with their lineage and story and discover their essence and expression and there are ways that grassroots change can happen very quickly um but i think that when it comes to the regenerative revolution which is not about agriculture it is but it's about society it's about asking the bigger questions we've been talking about um that is a that is gonna what's what's beautiful about this is that it can connect with people in so many different ways. So like yep. regeneration is, it, it could be for somebody all about dealing with structural racism. For someone else, it could be all about, you know, creating a more circular economy that, you know, decarbonizes the environment. For others, it could be totally about understanding the beauty of a spider web in the Amazon, but understanding that like sense and beauty of place and anchoring that kind of like finding those anchor points for each person. Um, It might be simple as like starting a food donation thing. It might be simple. It's I think it's the regenerative revolution is about humanity leaning into its better virtues. And I think humans know how to do that. Um, And especially when provided the right container. I mean, I think about like churches think about, you know, you know, I might disagree with the point of a religious operation, but the essence, what they're trying to accomplish, their intentionality is really, really good. And um, I think we just need to lean into our better virtues. I think that is the essence of the regenerative revolution. And it's a
0: lot, but I think
1: it's it's within, our, it's within all of us and it's possible.
0: Yeah and you're doing it with farms because that's where you come from and the story it's a great way to wrap it up and that makes so much sense and phil man it's it's been awesome dude thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate it i am i'm excited to go back and re-listen to this one because there's there's a lot of nuggets in there that you can't catch when you're hosting and i love re-watching the episodes as like an audience member but for now dude thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate your time
1: yeah thanks for having me it was a real pleasure we just kind of scratch the tip of the iceberg, I feel. Um, it's yeah, only an hour. Keep, yeah, man. Keep up the good work.
0: Will do. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. See you next week. Take it easy. Thanks so much for listening to Changing the Climate, a podcast hosted by Climate Change Realty, the most innovative real estate corporation ever conceptualized. Visit ccrbolder.com today.